Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ed Legg continue their discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year, with a look at the record industry's rediscovery of their back catalogs and the quest to find the next Bob Marley. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say, Eddie's role? That's right. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, back once again with Ed Legg to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. And this week, we're going to be looking at reissues and the attempt to find the next Bob Marley. Ed, welcome. Glad to be here, Nate. And so I hope you got your Rasta on for this week because, you know... Bob Marley and all. Yes, sir. I'm re- I'm ready for an uprising. <laughs> all right, all right. So, the story starts this chapter in Island at Island Records, London, May eighth, nineteen eighty four. I believe that's the day they they issued the Bob Marley Legend Collection. Is why this date is the chapter. But I could be wrong. But anyway, it starts out with um, David Robinson who was the founder of Stiff Records, which is the label that put out Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe and The Damned and uh, Ian Dury and The Blockheads and et cetera, et cetera. He had run a small label, but run it really tight. And then he joined Island Records, which was a whole different kettle of fish. It was the classic 60s, 70s hippie empire stoner, king stoner Chris Blackwell, who had... You know, I mean, been involved uh, with ska and blue beat and the birth of reggae and 
I mean, you know, put out so many great uh, records from Jamaica, uh, starting with, um, you know, My Boy Lollipop by Millie Small and on and on. But Bob Marley, of course, had become the jewel in his crown. And then Bob Marley had sadly died in his early 30s of cancer in 1980 or 81, I want to say. But anyway, David Robinson comes along, joins Island, and figures out, you know what? We don't have a Bob Marley greatest hits. And that's what we need to do. And that was the right call. They put together the legend um, compilation and 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 blew the doors off. I mean, that thing was massive. How many cars have you seen that CD or cassette in? Oh, yeah. I, it's so true. It's so ubiquitous. Yeah, and the posters and the whole bit. I mean, I'm not sure if I... You know, I was only 13 or 15 at the time. I'm not sure. Sh- I definitely heard of Bob Marley while he was alive. But this Legends was the first one I owned. And that was the first poster I got. And so, you know, thanks to David Robinson for kind of introducing me to Bob Marley in a big way. Sure. But, I, but one thing I, I thought was interesting was that, that Robinson's mantra on this was stay out of the more political songs. Bob Marley was a great pop songwriter, a great pop songwriter who had a way of putting deep meaning into the most innocent terms. And yet it's got get up, stand up on it. I mean, I think it's got Buffalo Soldier on it. It raised my consciousness. (laughs) I guess that's mine too. Mine too. And I, and you know, when I was listening to it was in the, in the nineties. I hate to admit that. I mean, but, and I mean, I was listening, I was exposed to Bob before then, but, but I always thought it was, um, dim belly full, but we hungry. You know, I mean, I always thought it had that aspect to it. Yeah, it definitely did. I don't think there's any way to completely render Bob Marley politically toothless, but, um, right. uh, You know, but it's a great pop collection that obviously, you know, work for itself. And it's interesting that they launched it in the UK um, with a TV ad campaign, which was, uh, you know, I wasn't watching UK TV at the time, obviously, but in America, TV ad campaigns were associated with, you know, KTEL and artists that were not, you know, it wasn't A-list artist stuff that you did that for. So it was a pretty novel strategy and it worked. It topped the UK charge for 14 weeks. They didn't even release it in the States until August, but just a, just a massive thing. And I think, one of the things about the 80s that gets overlooked a lot is how much more popular Bob Marley was in the 80s in America than he was in the 70s. And also, I would tie that in with how much more popular the Grateful Dead was in the 80s than they were in the 70s. And the whole ganja culture around Bob Marley and the acid culture around the Grateful Dead was a huge part of 80s underground pop culture. Um, you know, everybody talks about cocaine, but but those those two drugs, I think, were you know were a big piece of it. But Matos, as is his want, and I guess we should go ahead and play our first song. Let's go ahead and drop. You know, uh, this is Bob Marley. Is this love the first song on the classic legend right. compilation? Every day and every night We'll 
and that was Bob Marley's This Love from the Legend compilation. And and so Matos is doing uh, some pretty clever things here. He's he's using Marley and and this as a well, I mean, he's kind of introducing Marley because the rest of the chapter is going to be kind of the record. It's going to be twofold. It's going to be one part, the record industry's search for the next Bob Marley, which essentially boils down to, you know, scouring Jamaica and the Caribbean and even Africa for, for artists that they thought might have that potential to break through and become, you know, a Bob Marley level superstar, which is colossal. You can't. Yeah. It's um, almost even impossible to fathom how famous Bob Marley became in this period. I mean, you know, the Bob Marley T-shirt and the Che Guevara T-shirt are on, on comparable levels yeah. worldwide. But Che Guevara never went multi-platinum in the States. <laughs> but, <then Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but the second thing that Matos is doing is that he's talking about the way the record industry had started to take more care with their reissues. And this is going to become a bigger and bigger theme from the early 80s all through the 90s and and into the early 2000s until, you know, the MP3 thing killed the CD era. But record industries the record industry figured out that their catalogs especially with the new CD format, that there was gold in them, their vaults, and they and they could just repackage, um, and 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 people wanted to buy old music, and but you know, and and it, and he, he again connects it to the nineteen seventy nine crash because you know keep in mind the record industry in the states after World War II had been recession proof. It's it 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 rock and rolled through the recession right after World War II. It 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 didn't hit any bumps in the 50s. It you know, I'm not even sure if there was a recession in the 60s, but it, it rode through the 73 recession, no problem. And uh but the 79 recession caught the record industry with their pants down. And this is when they figured out, oh, we need to look for other ways to make money. And that's, you know, when they started activating their back catalog. And MCA, he points out in 1982, MCA earned $20 million from back catalog and reissue sales. Now, you're old enough to remember MCA, just like I am. Was that yeah. a janky record label or what? Well, I, you know, Elton John, who was my favorite uh, in eighth grade and, and end of seventh grade, and then Leonard Skinner were, were both huge imps. You know, Leonard Skinner Working wrote a song MCA. about it. Yeah, that's right. And so, I mean, I was kind of MCA centric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they're, they are kind of it. Yeah, I mean, they put out they put out some great records, but but they their my impression of their back catalog sales in the eighties was seeing a lot of albums that were discount priced, that were greatest hit sets that had the big MCA label on it, and seeing them all over the place. That's that's, and then and then and then the the label just it went from one of the industry leaders before the eighties into just lower and lower fortunes I, I think over time and, and, and eventually you know uh, became bombed but the other thing Matos talks about here is that it wasn't just labels dumping out their catalogs willy-nilly that they're that they're starting in the 70s that that a few labels had started to really curate the archives of 
started with blues, rhythm and blues, and country artists. And he, he shouts out Bear Family Records and Richard Viza, uh, which was founded in 1975. And I mean, if you're a serious hardcore record fan, Google Bear Family Records and track down their stuff. If you like country, rockabilly, blues, rhythm and blues, they've probably put out a nine-volume CD set with an incredible book to go with it that you can probably find used at a big discount from the sales price. But, you know, uh, Matos shouts out in particular uh, the 14 LP set of Lefty Frizzell's complete works that that Bear Family put out in 1984, which, um, you know, one of my favorite absolute absolute stone favorite artist in any category definitely my favorite country artist um you know so this this was important work and he also talks about uh, charlie records which started in 1974 and they specialized in putting out sun reissues and the guy and i'm blanking on his name but he's the guy who made a fortune off of uh harper valley pta and then sam phillips sold him the sun catalog and and he he worked with charlie you know basically gave charlie the keys of the vaults and so their big release in 1984 was sun records the blues years 1950 to 1956 and i just did an episode with peter garonic uh about his great new book about uh sun records and you know, when we think about Sun, I mean, who do you think of when you think of Sun Records? Elvis. And who do you think of next? Jerry Lee Lewis. And who's and Johnny Cash and Sam Phillips. I'm sorry, Sam Phillips. <laughs> yeah, and Carl Perkins and, and Charlie Rich <laughs> and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And those are yeah. perfectly rational choices. That's who you think of when you think of Sun Records, but you yeah. don't think about yeah. Junior Parker and... Uh, you know, all the other great, the prisoners and all right. the other great blues and R&B artists that Sam Phillips recorded. Now, and this stuff didn't even include the stuff he cut with Ike Turner or B.B. King or Howlin' Wolf, oh, yeah. which, which he, yeah. Sam Phillips, recorded for other labels. But nonetheless, that I've heard that Sun Records, the Blues Years comp, and it makes a serious case that, you know, Sam Phillips clearly had his ear to the ground and was working hard in the R&B field. It's just that he didn't have the massive hits. It's just, it's fascinating. I mean, for a guy who basically cut a number one R and B record with rocket 88, um, with Jackie Brinson and his Bearcats, whatever that they put on the label, but it was Ike Turner and his rhythm Kings that made that record. And, (laughs) and, you know, and Sam couldn't, uh, recapture that on his own and and you know um big and I, I don't know i think there's kind of an aspect of fate in there that that but anyway the point is that sun records the blues years kind of restored sun records reputation as a blues and r&b label to where it should have been and then he also mentions ace records which is still going as so is bear family i'm not sure about charlie but ace is still going and putting out great stuff but they had licensed uh the Lori records catalog which you know deep and dion and the belmonts and then Specialty, which had, you know, Little Richard and Lloyd Price and, um, you know, on and on and on, a ton of great stuff. And and then, of course, he talks about Rhino Records, which, I don't know, were you aware of Rhino around this time? Or? You know, I, 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 I want to say I was. I, I think they, they were the first ones that I that got on my radar. But the thing that I found when reading this this time was wishing that I'd bought so many things that, they reissued that I'd been, that it that it that I'd been more present about what they were doing because there was a lot of stuff that I that you can't get anymore from them. Yeah, yeah, a lot of their compilations 
they specialized in putting together compilations that would take more, like most compilations or greatest hits albums would just look at one label's catalog of an artist. But when you're when you're looking back at an artist, you know, 25 years after their heyday, you really don't care what label they were on for this hit or that hit. You want all the hits. And and Rhino would take the trouble and license all those songs. But the downside of that is that those licenses were generally for that one issue. You know, that that album or you know, cassette CD, and it hasn't carried over into the streaming era. And so a lot of those Rhino oh, collections, really? yeah, if you can find them, uh, you know, in a hard copy, that's a good way to do it. Or you can also just, a lot of times you can just look at what was on the, the playlist and just make your own playlist and reconstruct those compilations. Oh, oh yeah. But yeah. the key is finding the right versions because you'll get on Spotify and you'll, be, you know, you put together here's here's the songs I want to hear, and you put it all on there, and then you're hearing, you know, uh, a a collection of Dion and the Belmont songs, and all of a sudden the strings are replaced with synthesizers, and Dion sounds a little old, <laughs> maybe a little heavy, and you're like, ah, I think this is a re-recording from later, <laughs> and and you know that's the kind of thing that'll drive a dork like me crazy. So yeah, yeah, you know, but but um. Let's go ahead and hear our next our next tune, which is a which is another artist who was getting a big reissue treatment a, a, around this period. And I'm going to make an argument after we hear the song. So this is James Brown. Give it up or turn it loose. <laughs> <laughs> That was James Brown's Give It Up or Turn It Loose, an early 70s classic that was reissued by Polydor, um, I think that year, that Polydor issued two volumes of the James Brown story at the same time as um, that Solid Smoke reissued the Federal Years, parts one and two of James Brown. And, and Federal was a subsidiary of King Records owned by Sid Nathan, uh, which makes me have to mention the late Seymour Steiner just passed away this weekend because he was Sid Nathan's literal protege. Yeah. But James Brown is somebody that when I was a kid, I can remember seeing him on TV in his Mr. Mustache era and getting a wild hair and wanting to hear more James Brown. Like I was probably the only person in the world who a hadn't heard of James Brown already and liked the mustache James Brown disco era. But I remember going to the record store and not finding anything. And, and one of my older brothers even took me to a used record store where I managed to find some James Brown stuff. But before these reissues, you couldn't find James Brown for a little while. I, I think in the late seventies, early eighties, he was just out of print. And That's and bizarre. yeah, which is so hard to imagine. And and, and Matos, he's kind of tweaking Chris Gow because he quotes Chris Gow reviewing, I think the the James Brown story from Polydor. And he calls it, this is the place to start convincing yourself that JB belongs in the Pantheon with Elvis and the Beatles. Now, in 2023, that sounds dumb as fuck. <laughs> Apologies to the great Mr. Chris Cow. 
<laughs> but I mean, to uh, you know, at this point in time, it's pretty much like you got to convince yourself that Elvis and the Beatles belong in the pantheon with James Brown. There you so, go. So it's weird yeah. to see, which honestly, I think they're all all three monumentally great influential artists. Um, but nonetheless, the idea that that James Brown was not regarded that way back in the day is pretty shocking. And if you go further back and read the reviews from the 70s or the 60s, he was definitely not appreciated by rock critics. Um, I mean, obviously, he was appreciated by the fans, but... Yeah. But, no, what? What did you? Did you know he was on Letterman the first summer of Le, of David Letterman's show? I did not. That was before. Uh, that was and before eighty two. Yes, and it was eighty two. And um, what is really strange is he he had a he's from Augusta, Georgia, or Augusta, South Carolina, which is pretty close. It's closer to Athens than Atlanta, and he somehow became a Georgia football fan, and so. I I was exposed to him a little bit um, because of that because my dad was one and I went to Georgia and it wasn't because Athens was a hip Athens was a hip place or um, because we were smart but when he was on Letterman he actually played a medley that included the song that was adapted for Georgia's football team and he sang the Georgia version which was really funny so um, but but he was like a he was a care. I was actually outside a locker room at the, their state at Sanford Stadium in Athens, and he was there. And he's not. He's a. He's not a real tall guy. No, but he he's was a at dude. that point. Yes, he. He was, but he was like. He was more like a cartoon character. And you know, I did see him late. I did encounter him later when I was much more, you know, with it. By which time I had played some songs in a band with you know some James Brown songs, but but he was just not he and it is it's 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 strange how it it um what you just described happened for somebody that is so great and so yeah. important. And but I mean I think I think because his songs like if you're if you're coming from the Great American Songbook, or even the Lennon and McCartney, or the the Lieber and Stoller songwriting tradition, James Brown chords tend to be vamps on uh, songs tend to be vamps on one chord, with improvised lyrics, very little melody, and so for people who are listening for that kind of songwriting, he's not really doing very much, and they completely slept on the fact that he's absolutely revolutionizing rhythm and he's bringing polyrhythms. Yeah. He's turning a band into you know, like a Cuban style polyrhythmic, uh, you know, drum orchestra. And people just didn't, I mean, people appreciated it. They were hits at the time and that's what people danced to, but people didn't grasp the magnitude of it. And here's what I want to talk about is that this is also right before this is 1984. So like this year, uh, James Brown and Africa Bambata collaborate on a track called unity, which is really the first, bridge between hip-hop artists and and old-school R&B guys and it wasn't a big hit I think it I don't even know if it made it definitely didn't make the pop charts I think it barely scraped into the top 100 R&B but it's on this verge like what's about to happen is Run DMC is about to come and, and Matos will get to all this in a later chapter but just a couple years later Eric B of Eric B and Rakim is going to start making these records that are just built on James Brown samples. Like the technology, the sampling technology comes to a point where it's cheap enough 
for these young black street producers to get their hands on them. People like Marley Marl yeah. and Eric B and, and, you know, Hank Shockley and, and, and the public enemy crew and um, the bomb squad and all those cats, but they were so James Brown focused and, I, you know, I'm sure they'll all tell you they were digging in the crates and that they had all the original. And a lot of them probably did. I'm sure their parents and, and older brothers and sisters had those old James Brown records. But I also bet you anything that half those DJs were sampling off these new compilations that had just come out that, uh, uh, you know, it's just something the more the more I research yeah. musicians, the more I realize their kids that don't have any historical perspective, and if something is common in the marketplace, that's what they're probably going to find. You know, later on in the '90s, you get these more sophisticated, uh, you know, uh, um, generation of crate diggers. You know, uh, Jay Dilla, et cetera, and, and you know, uh, all the guys of the Wu Tang Clan, et cetera, that that are, are digging through the crates looking for these obscure early '70s records. But at this point in the '80s. I'm betting that these. I'm just saying that the magnitude and the impact of these James Brown reissues is not to be underestimated. And if you're sitting here thinking, you know, where's Boy George? Where's Michael Jackson? Where's when are we ever going to get to Prince? Where's Bruce Springsteen? Why are you talking about Bob Marley and James <laughs> Brown in the 1984 show? It's 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 Matos is you know Matos is is making these decisions, and I think this is a really smart one because um, I, I just you can't. The, the magnitude of the impact of older records, things like Bob Marley Legend, these James Brown comps and all these other comps we've been talking about, this was a big impact on pop culture at the time. And then he gets into Elvis and talks about how you know RCA puts out a six LP box set, Elvis a Golden Celebration, which was 20 tape reels that they had discovered in Graceland that RCA A&R Joan Deary found and like smuggled out of Graceland and, and rushed back to RCA to get these things, you know, the printing plant. And what they figured out was that, that, or what the big thing that happened was this is the first time that pop music is being marketed to adults since the fifties, if not, if not before, I mean, that the that Mato says the quote longstanding directive to sell rock to teenagers changed. Like we we rock is now mature enough that they realized, oh, Elvis fans are in their 30s to 50s now, and at this point, Elvis those same Elvis fans, I mean, are in their 80s to deceased, and um, you know by but by the, in the 80s it's majority female. They listen to country or adult contemporary radio. Then they were more apt to buy an expensive box set than a cheap single. Hence, you know, the marketing. And that's why, you know, what you see these days is like lavish repackaging of grunge band catalogs or whatever and stuff, you know, people are, oh, yeah. you know, want to buy with, with some money and, 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 and all that. But let's go ahead and take a quick sponsor break. And when we come back, we're going to switch to the hunt for the next Bob Marley. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And so with Bob Marley moving units to the degree he is, because Legend didn't just go multi-platinum on its own, it also triggered a rush on his back catalog. I know I bought Catch a Fire and, um, you know, uh, Exodus, a bunch of albums once I got Legend, and, and I wasn't the only one. And And everybody in the record industry is looking at this and going, hmm, I wonder where the next Bob Marley is. And as Matos points out, that there had been lots of hit reggae songs on the radio in this period. I mean, he cites Roxanne by the Police, Down Under by Men at Work, Blondie's cover of The Tide is High, Stevie Wonder, Master Blaster, Culture Club, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? And what's missing in that picture? What, when, you, when you think collections of great reggae songs, what, what's the one factor missing there? Not any reggae music, you know, not any true, you know, Jamaican. Yeah. Not, not a Jamaican. Nary a Jamaican on that list. We've got England, <laughs> we've got Australia, we've got Detroit, we've got New York. Um, but yeah, no Jamaicans. And so, you know, as Mato says, the music was getting out, but the Jamaican artists weren't getting the credit. And so one thing that was going on was that the sound in Jamaica had changed, that, that the pop artists are still digesting and reproducing what Bob Marley and Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler and you know Black Uhuru et cetera et cetera had been doing in the early Black Uhuru is kind of later, but what all these artists had done in the early seventies and and you know the pop scene was still digesting it and catching up with it throughout the, the late seventies and early eighties, but the sound actually had moved on, actually just starts moving on right around this time in Jamaica. And that's where you get Yellow Man, a.k.a. Winston Foster, who uh, represents what became known as Dance Hall. And, and, and the, 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 the nomenclature of Dance Hall is interesting because they didn't see it as a self-conscious new style. But it was just a fact that was what was being made on the records and what was being played internationally was different than what was still being played in the dance halls. Like the, the dance halls had stayed contemporary and were moving on and synths and drum machines and stuff were starting to get in there and, and the sound is changing. And somebody like Yellow Man, the last thing on his mind in the 80s, I guarantee you, is Bob Marley. I mean... <laughs> I'm sure he was aware of and reverent towards yada, 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 but he's not waiting for Peter Tosh to give him the A-OK on what he's going to do next. You know, this (laughs) is (laughs) new generation of Jamaicans that are, are, you know, 
uh, saying their piece and, and, you know, ready to, to go on. And, and so dance hall for me, like when I was doing the techno roll series, I really got into dance hall because it, as a kid, I was always like, oh, that's when it all went south. That's when it got ruined. You know, when it was roots reggae, it was it was righteous. But then, you know, this this modern dance hall stuff's not righteous. And it's like, what is a white kid in Borger, Texas <laughs> to tell yellow man, yeah. you know, about being authentic or whatever? And once I had kind of clicked to, oh, synth music can be cool, you know, I went back and 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 really dug it. But Nonetheless, I don't think anybody thought Yellow Man, who's an albino African uh, or Af a Jamaican of African descent, was going to be a big star in America. I mean, uh, you know, he had, had some, some killer songs, I think, could have probably had a bigger impact in the States. But no, but no A&R guy is going to look at Yellow Man and be, this is the next Bob Marley. So we're going to have to continue yeah. the quest with... Um, Ruben Blades. Now, this were you surprised when Ruben Blades pops in here? Yes, I was, and I mean, I it also surprised me because I remember how much. I mean, I went to I was at a festival one time, and he was performing there, and he was also in movies, and how how what a cultural kind of a cultural force, mini force that he was for this. This seems like a window of time. Yeah, and and I was aware of him as as you know, the star of crossover dreams, which was a movie he made, uh, I guess around 84. Uh, and, but I was, I heard of the music and read reviews of it, but I didn't actually hear the music anywhere. There wasn't a lot of salsa right. yeah. radio yeah. Uh, in my neck of the woods, but, but it's interesting. Yeah. You know, this was kind of his big year. And Matos kind of gives his, you know, career retrospective that he's Panamanian uh, but moved to New York City in 69, uh, was in the salsa scene, which was, um, you know, the Puerto Riqueño, New York City scene. I mean, obviously, lots of Cuban influences as well um, and other Caribbean influences as well. So I was interested about the Panamanian thing. I mean, to me, it's fascinating the way that the music travels around uh, the Caribbean and, and then the different aspects of it. So I wasn't expecting one of the top salsa singers of the late seventies, early eighties to be Panamanian, but I, you know, whatever it's free world, but he moved, uh, he's first, he sings for Ray Barreto on Fania records. And then he moves on to Willie Colon's band in 1977. He replaced Hector Laveau and then kind of blew the doors off of that niche. Like their album, uh, Colon's album, Siembra sold between 300,000 and 1 million, which is, as Mato says, a lot for salsa, which is a market where 40,000 was a hit. So Blades is already punching above his weight just as a sideman. And then in 1984, he signs with Electra. So Electra is thinking, aha, maybe Ruben Blades will be the next, you know, Bob Marley. Maybe we'll be, have some Latin flavor in there. And, and they put out his album, Buscando America, which does 10,000 sales initially. And then Blades goes to Harvard Law School starting in fall of 1984. Did you see that one coming? <laughs> like, no. And <laughs> the movies I saw him in were after that. Yeah. So did he did he become a movie star after that? Is that? I think he's. Am I reading I, that I, right? I, well, I didn't research this in depth enough. Apologies, but I think he shot Crossover Dreams before he went to Harvard Law School. Um, but if you're an A&R guy and you're trying to make the next Bob Marley out of dude and he goes to law school, 
you'd have to think, well, I'm going to just cut the marketing budget a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, um, so I think that might be part of why Reuben Blades never became, uh, you know, the next Bob Marley or never. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he got bigger than this. But I think this is a high watermark. So, well, I, I, he was, he was performing when I saw him, it was 88, uh, uh, fall of 88. I didn't actually see him. I was at a festival where a bunch of different bands were playing and he was one of them. And, and I mean, I knew who he was then, and I'm not saying that's when it, but I, I think you're right. Um, he, he continued to, to make waves of a sort, but it was interesting to see his name pop up. Yeah. That's what, um, yeah, it was a swerve I was not expecting. Like, I was expecting um, yeah. Yellow Man and the next couple of artists we're going to talk about, but I, I did not see Reuben Blades yeah. coming in this. But it makes perfect yeah. sense. And it's also really, uh, you know, is there that big a difference between salsa and, and reggae? Well, yeah, but but also they're, yeah. they're all Caribbean musics, uh, you know, and, and, um, and yeah. they're out groups you know, in the Anglo dominated us. So, you know, it makes perfect sense to lump him in there, but let's go ahead. I just had to, uh, pick this song. I couldn't resist, uh, picking yellow man. And, uh, uh the only way I can pronounce this is to try to sing it. So I'm not going to do that, <laughs> but, uh, this is a very long unpronounceable word that yellow man makes roll off his tongue in, in a beautiful <laughs> song. So Yeah. I can't even say it unless I can sing it and I'm not going to try to sing it, but here's yellow man with one of his big hits from 1984. <laughs> Zungo zungo go zungo zen, zungo zungo go zungo zen. Say if you have a paper, you must have a pen. And if you have a start, you must have a end. Say five plus five, it equal to ten. And if you have both, you put them in a bin. And if you have a rooster, you must have a end. Now zungo zungo go zungo zen, zungo zungo go zungo zen. Jump for happiness and jump. And that was Yellow Man with. And I'm going to blow it again. I, th I was so sure when I was listening that I can't remember it. But anyway, y'all heard the title. Zunga Zanga Gazunga Zang. I guess as close as, as I Very good. Get. Well, thank you. Thank that you. Works for me. <laughs> I'm glad I got the head like seal of approval on that. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but the, um, the next, the next uh, artist that, that, they talk about is that Island records um, themselves, the, the people who broke Bob Marley internationally made Bob Marley um, as a pop performer. They jump on King Sonny a day and his African beats. And now that, that um, I remember, I remember the stuff um, getting a fair amount of attention. And it's funny. It seems like Fila Kuti uh, has, kind of overshadowed King Sunny a day, maybe in the long run. I mean, and, and maybe that's just my misimpression, but at the time, you know, and reading this, it definitely reminded me King Sunny a day was a much bigger deal in the States at the time that Fila Kuti was. Do you remember any, did this make any impression on you at the time? Yeah. You know, I want to say that I was in a band with a guy who, um, before we kind of went our commercial way, was totally dialed in and he saw King Sonny a day and was just out of his mind about him. Um, but this was more like 87. 
so it was a little later. Yeah. But yeah. Um, Fela, I know, I think of Fela as being much more that mega giant than King Sunny a day. Yeah, yeah, I th- I think that's probably the historical consensus. But again, I'm not an Afro pop specialist, so so I'm me neither. That. But uh, um, but it's interesting, and, and so Island puts out King Sunny a day. They brand him. They don't brand him explicitly, but like what they're telling people is this is the next Bob Marley. Like that's part of the sales pitch. They put out three albums on their subsidiary Mango label: Juju Music, Synchro System, and Aura, and they were. And I uh, could be wrong here. I, my impression is that this was all stuff that was that he had already recorded and put out in Africa. And so I'm not sure if they re-recorded those songs or if they compiled those songs into new albums. But anyway, it was new stuff for the U.S. and U.K. markets. And then what was interesting to me, and this is where I heard of him, was Juju made number four in the Village Voice annual Paz and Jop poll, which was a big deal at the time. And... I mean, all through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, it was a big deal. And and I didn't even get my hands on the Village Voice, but somehow I still heard about the Paz and Chop poll. I think through a magazine I got in Dallas um, that you know lasted four issues or something, but had a big uh, had a reference to to that. And that was also where I first heard about uh, a hip hop was that same random magazine purchase, but. Uh, Sunny a day. Um, it, it has a whole story of how the A and R man was in Africa, was in Nigeria, and was actually working with Fila Kuti and heard Sunny a day on the radio, and or maybe playing on a tape in a cab, a cab driver's car, and 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 jumped on board, and that's why Sunny a day got the push, uh, and he he toured the states in 1983 was promoted by Paul Rhodes Trotman, who uh, was also the manager of John Lurie's Lounge Lizards, which is kind of a, a no-wave uh, Afro-pop connection I wasn't expecting. Um, but one thing that, that Matos points out that I think is important is that these kind of African beats, the Talking Heads on their Remain in Light album and, and all their subsequent tours, we talked about them last week, um, incorporated a lot of African rhythms. Adam Ant... Uh, and and Bow Wow Wow and Malcolm McLaren on the English side had also put African beats on the pop charts. So people were kind of primed. They'd heard this stuff in a different context, and now they were hearing it in the original context um, and and making some headway. But I thought it was interesting that, that Sonia Day only got radio play in Boston and Chicago, but then did very well on his tour on U.S. campuses, powered by a New York Times review by the late, great Robert Palmer. And, and also did well in dance clubs. The song 365 is my number and the message. Uh, we're big at the loft, which is a legendary disco that was pretty long in the tooth by this point. I assume it, it maybe did well in the loft a couple years earlier than this. Um, but then he tours again in 1984 with Black Uhuru opening up, promoted by the FBI, not the Federal Bureau of Investigations, but Ian Copeland's booking agency. That's the brother of Miles Copeland of IRS Records and Stuart Copeland of the band The Police. And so they dropped Troutman, who had promoted their first successful tour, and move up the food chain to Ian Copeland. And Matos kind of diagnoses that, that certain qualities were lost in the desire to make King Sunny a day, U.S. style star, and so that that the groundwork that they had laid in '83 
that they pushed too hard or tried to make him into something that he really wasn't and kind of lost the magic. He also mentions uh, Black Uhuru's compilation album, Reggae Greats, which was Island trying to repackage their catalog into kind of a what Matos calls a second bite at the Legend album, Legend Apple. Uh, sorry to mess up your metaphor, Michelangelo. And uh, um, <laughs> but uh, Martin Messonnier was the producer and manager, and and also uh, produced Fila Kute. And I, he mentions you, Masakela's uh, uh, "Don't Go Don't Go Lose a Baby." Uh, hit number two on the dance charts this year. And you, Masakela, is somebody who'd been around. I mean, he played horns on uh, So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star by the Birds in 1967. So he, he'd been around and been on the scene, a uh, South African musician, and was very important. But let's go ahead and hear our uh, one last song. This is King Sunny A Day doing Ja Foon Me live in, in the States in 1983. What do you mean? And that was King Sunny A Day's Ja Funmi live in 1983. And that's pretty much what I got. You got anything to add here, Ed? We, we're kind of short episode. Well, but I think I, I wondered, I, I mean, I, I want to try on a, a something somebody said to me, uh, a guy who I knew from, he was from Dublin, and he was a, a no-wave or, or post-punk. I think he was actually in a legitimate band in Dublin and London. But then he did, um, he did become, uh, he became a DJ. And I met him in, in Minneapolis, and he actually, he was was good enough at it that he flew all over the world to, to, to DJ. And he actually DJ DJ at Paisley park for, for three parties that Prince that were Prince's parties. Wow. Um, he got, fired, he got fired on the third. Yeah. He got <laughs> fired. The third one, he showed up for the gig. The guy walked out and said, you're fired. And he said, I didn't even know I was hired because <laughs> Prince started, Prince had started talking to him and that must, and, and liked him. Uh-oh. And was talking guitar with him, and that must—he thought that must have threatened somebody. Yeah, but yeah. Um, and this was like in the two thousand, early two thousands. But he was a a guy that I learned a lot about the nature of discrimination from because um, he's from Ireland and and England and the Irish famine and the IRA and the you know the the Belfast and all that stuff, which I know a little bit about um, because I lived in England a little while, but. Um, I learned so much from him about the nature of some of that stuff that's so different from the discrimination we have here in the good old U.S. of A. Um, but he told me he also was a Buddhist. He traveled all over the world and went in a lot of third world places. He said the Beatles aren't the biggest band in the world. Bob Marley is. Yep. Yep. And I, I thought that was and you can't you're not going to get it. You're not going to if you're ne- we're not going to ever repeat the Beatles and you can't get another Bob Marley either. And I, and I I believe that I believe it. I saw I actually got to see Bob Marley in 79. Oh, wow. In a theater. 
in yeah, the theater. Yeah, and I'm and I yes, in the theater where I work, the Fox Theater, four thousand seat, packed with people, um, more black people than white people in Atlanta, Georgia, and they were not. I bet they were not African American. I bet they were more Jamaican American or Jamaican African Jamaican people on there. Yeah, um, Afro Caribbean. This it was foggy. Yes, it was a the the smoke was blue in that room, but um, but it, but it was a phenomenal. And I can't take credit because I wanted to leave after our when we were done. I was an usher, and my buddy almost physically uh, compelled me to stay. And I, it ended up just it was epic. I mean, it really was. You really it really was great. I mean, so I kind of believe that about Bob Marley now. I, I have no doubt of that. That that's a well, a, a fairly well. I mean, I don't know exactly how you would analyze that, but that's been the yeah. How do you, I, yes? How do you? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure there's some way to quantify that, but I've definitely heard that, and that Bob Marley is uh, as famous, or at least was in the seven, you know, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and yeah. I, presumably uh, his Q rating is still pretty high. Um, yeah. But he was at Muhammad Ali or Che Guevara levels of international yeah. stardom. And the Beatles are in there. I mean, they're big. You yeah. know, I mean, yeah. the Beatles have fans all over Africa and Latin America and everything, too, but not as many as Bob Marley. I mean, Bob Marley, I think, because he was really the first person from the quote-unquote third world, which is a pretty awful term, but a lot of people globally identified with him because he was coming from Jamaica, which was clearly not part of the you know north american western european quote unquote first world it's not japan it's not south korea yeah. you know it's it's a relatively yeah. impoverished country with a history of slavery and colonial exploitation yeah. and here comes this guy becoming you know, it took him a while. Like, like you know, we've talked about it a few times in the show, and I'm going to do an episode on Marley specifically pretty soon. But he was; it wasn't a quick breakthrough. He broke through in England first, and African Americans were actually a very hard demo for Bob Marley to break through with. That he yeah, he broke through that. with with white college rockers, and um, you know, first, but then. And it's classic, you know, there's a great Chuck D quote from the 80s when when he was, you know, big with Public Enemy and he started getting contact, you know, he starts moving in higher circles or whatever. And so, like, some ad executive approached him one time and was like, how do I sell Ford Broncos to black people? And and Chuck <laughs> D was like, you sell them to white people and we'll follow along. <laughs> and I think, you know, I mean, which is... Uh, you know, I mean, I'm clearly quoting Chuck D to get some validation here, because if I just say that on my own, people are just going to be like, shut up, white boy. But there, right. I, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, obviously, plenty of occasions when you market things to white people by selling them to black people first or black people invent something culturally and then white people steal it, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also, I think, a factor of once Bob Marley was a megastar with white people, then black people gave him a different look rather than, or African-Americans in the States, that overcame whatever intra-African diaspora beef there is between North American 
you know, uh, North Americans of African descent and Caribbean people of African descent. So, you know, any ethnic group you get into, as you subdivide it, the fights will continue and it just splits into smaller and smaller groups. And so that stuff was fascinating. But I also think you should give yourself some credit because you went and saw Bob Marley the same uh, time as as um, HR and the Bad Brains did for the first time. So, you know, like you're kidding. That's what no. I saw. I'm really. I don't know. Really? It was that show, but it was that tour. But they saw him in that D.C. Tour, yes, yes. You know, and I have I had to look up when that tour. I had to look online to see when a ticket, what the day was it on it. it, it that 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 um, that particular concert is. I was already in college, so I was not working at the theater as much. And that it almost is like it happened outside of time. And and it was just. And I was not. You didn't. You. I wasn't hearing any Bob Marley on the radio. I didn't know any of his songs. I think I knew one song with Pat Travers covered one of his songs. Oh God! So I knew it was the one you played tonight. The one um, is this love. I knew that one because yeah. of Pat Travers. But yeah, I mean, well, it was. And of course, it I was saw one of those. With yeah, the, with yeah, yeah. Okay, of course. Good point. I yeah, never yeah. thought that is Reggie. No, but you're right. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a Bob Marley song, and Clapton's version is relatively, you know, um, respectful, perfectly fine version. It is. Um, yeah, but yeah, but it's not the Bob Marley version. I mean, you know, and and, and in retrospect, yeah. when you are used to the Bob Marley version, you hear the Eric Clapton version. It's it's nothing like hearing the Pat Boone version of, say, Fats Domino or Little Richard. Yeah, there's point. a taste to that. There, I mean, it's it's yeah. not you know, it's not quite the original. And 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 yeah, I mean, Bob Marley was just kind of um, kind of a creeper high. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> you, you, you take a token and then, you know, five years later, he's a big superstar. And, and, uh, and you know, and his his early death, I think, is also a factor because, yeah, unfortunately, it's human nature to take people for granted while they're alive. And then I don't want to say over extol them when they're dead. I mean, that certainly happened to John Lennon, you know, the, the entire yeah. myth making thing around the, the John Lennon after he died in the eighties was really intense. Um, but Marley, yes. I think got a similar thing. And I think internationally it was even bigger because he became the symbol of, of international, of, of African diaspora triumph, on the international pop culture stage. And I think, I think that the magnitude of what that meant to ensuing generations of Africans, of Caribbeans, of African-Americans, of Anglo-Americans, yeah. I mean, it meant a lot to a lot of people. And I mean, of course, you're going to see so many white kids start taking, start growing dreadlocks and et cetera in the eighties and nineties. And a lot of them were coming by way of the bad brains but the Bad Brains point you to Bob Marley. But like I said, if you you know you go back and look at at the Bad Brains in 1979, like the the Spot Black Spot album, which was you know unreleased demos at the time, there's no reggae influence there whatsoever. And and I think I think it's it's interesting to see just how rapidly and how massively seeing Bob Marley impacted their music and and the Clash and the Police and et cetera et cetera. But um, you know it, it's. Yeah, it's interesting. This, this... Well, it, it's it's coming from a real place. I mean, Jamaica really is hardcore. Yeah, there's no, you're not. It ain't the Bahamas. I mean, no, I, I lived in Florida and I worked and I did go occasionally for work to Jamaica and the Bahamas and other, you know, Caribbean and and North Atlantic. I, you know, the islands in the sun and 
Um, Jamaica beats them all. I mean, I haven't been to Cuba, but I mean, Jamaica, man, you talk about that is a heavy duty place. Yeah. I mean, you got to consider Haiti, though, too. As, as okay. It... Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now you're getting you're getting Ned Sublet on me, which, which after I heard him talking about Haiti, I mentioned it to my wife. And boy, that was a big hit going to Haiti for the drums. Because <laughs> you're right. You're right. Yeah. And Haiti is even more elemental, which is and that's worthy of further thought. Indeed, indeed it is. But we've got lots of <laughs> uh, Bob Marley to chew on for this episode. And next week we will be back with more of Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became pop spot buster year. And I'm trying to, I should, I really need to start looking ahead a little bit because I need to tell our audiences, oh, we're going to be talking about country music in 1984 next time. So yeah. that'll be fun. So for Ed Legg, I'm Nate Wilcox. And we've been discussing Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became Pop's blockbuster year. Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Letter Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate concludes the Three Kings of American Pop series with the final part of his discussion of Peter Goralnik's Elvis Presley biography, and the HBO documentary The Searcher with Gurdip Ladar and Justin Galsman of the TCB cast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.